3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. We're doing things a bit differently on the show today as we say goodbye to 2021. Today we're going to take a look at some of our favourite stories, voices and guests from the last year. So stay tuned and let's get into it. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. And now we're going to go into a song. This one is King Brown by Barker. Call me King Brown, you ain't fucking with me now Came 
You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and just then you heard King Brown by Barker. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. In 2021, the Thursday Breakfast crew conducted a series of interviews tracing the role of the arts in the gentrification and cultural history of Collingwood and Fitzroy. This was part of a collaborative project, Disorganizing, coordinated by Liquid Architecture, Bus Projects and West Space. In our interviews, you'll hear from local activists, artists, urban planners and historians, including Kucha Edwards, John Harding, Pora Bibi and Izzy Brown, Kelly and Spike, Libby Porter, Dr. Kate Shaw, and Karen Cummings. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au. In this conversation, I speak with Pora Bibi and Izzy Brown. Pora Bibi is a West Papuan based in Nam, a human rights activist and campaigner for Make West Papua Safe. Izzy Brown is the lead singer and MC of Combat Wombat and is the founder of the United Struggle Project. In this conversation, we talk about political organising, performing in public spaces, and the importance of creative autonomous zones. Yep. Um, thank you, and good day, your lockdown, lockdown nation. Um, I'm here. Um, for Bibi, I am um, a white man from Sairi Nation, West Papua, and I'm here in um as a West Papua human rights activist and wanna say uh, thank you so much for the uh Kulin Nations people allowing us amplifying West Papua and struggle and I'm also a creative producer with the United Struggle Project and I've been uh, involved in creative organizing and also amplifying um West Papua and struggle here in uh, Nam and um, Australia as a whole, and yeah, I'm looking forward to share my short, share my story, and um, share, uh, yeah, share the knowledge of uh, mobilizing and with the uh, creativity. Great, and Izzy. Hi there, I'm Izzy Brown, and. Uh, I live here on the Collingwood Housing Estate um, on Wurundjeri Country 
here in Nam, and um, I'm a co-founder of United Struggle Project um, and many other mischievous activities. Great. Um, so, Poro, you said that you're a campaigner with um, Make West Papua Safe and you're also a part of the United Struggle Project. Can you talk a little bit more about the Make West Papua Safe campaign? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, Make West Papua Safe campaign is a um, campaign for uh, stopping the international um, uh, investor to the militarism in West Papua and yeah one of the big uh, strategy that we've been using is uh, to have a direction towards all of these uh, uh, weapons and um, uh, war artillery companies such as Dallas uh, and Boeing and also um, Ryan Metal? Ryan Metal, and yeah, so on and so forth. So, uh, and also at the moment, we're trying to uh, investigate um, those Indonesian um, uh, high chief, high ranks, military uh, forces that have been trained here in Australia uh, to use um, Australian taxpayers' money and um, without concern of the First Nation um, community here, allowed them to have this joint military training uh, project together, and which have been um, deployed to West Papua to use as a killing agents towards the West Papua First Nation people. And yeah, that is make uh, West Papua safe uh, project or campaigns about. Um, Poro, do you want to talk yep. a little bit about some of the fundraisers that Make West Papua Safe and Free West Papua have put on um, in Nam? So uh, West Papuan um, uh, struggle and mobilizations and also uh, West Papuan history, creative has been a true essence of, uh, of uh, human life or West Papuan life. So uh, this the music creates such a intense feeling, and also it's a tool of cultural diplomacy and storytelling, and it builds connectedness and it motivates and it um it drives us to do to do more to to connect. And now, um, we as a West Papuan community, we have been doing it since um the arrival of forty three and. Uh, and also the new um, campaigns coming. We always uh, sing our elderly song, uh, Arnold Up, um, Life is a Mystery, which we found um, uh, inspiration for this movement. And, um, and that's actually motivating motivating me as a... As a uh, the new generations of activists, especially for West Papuan people. So how can I uh, create a space uh, or pro- project that involving this story, the story that is embedded in, in 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 my life or um, any other First Nation uh, next generation's life that you know we are we are we are really thirsty of having this presence because it's 
um, it's within us already, and um, it's just a matter of how we um, experiment it and, and explore it, and um, that's why uh, I wasn't really hesitating to see um, any other uh, First Nation creatives, and from there, uh, we knowing that oh, there is this. Um, Gap, a void in our community, in our society. So we need to have this um um the space. So when I started on 2018, and um I realized that um West Papua, uh, without the help of um what do you call it, formal infrastructure. Mm. Like within the system in in here uh, in Victoria, we need that you know community registered as a, a formal group, formal association. But it's again, it's uh, holding up each and every one of us who have struggled in English. So how can we make this really autonomous, autonomous and creative space? Um, uh, first thing I did was. Um, I connect with the easy with United Struggle Project, and I know that the vision is is really uh, pure and um, uh, to be able to create more space within that space for different uh, First Nation uh, creative or artists, or even we can help to do workshop with them who you know who already have story but to find a tool. So um, with uh, United Struggle Project, we have um, a music workshop, and also in here, music comes with different genres, so um, we're able to um, networking and connecting with the uh, the current um, uh, punk punk scene in Melbourne, hip hop scene, DJ scene, and um, yeah, from there, um, I'm involved. As a as a poet first, and then performer, 2018, and then start uh, working with um, com- different community spaces. So when we talk about uh, free, creative, autonomous spaces, in here, what I can think of is uh, two sp- two space uh, with dif- with different meaning um, of. Um, autonomous space, which means that uh, first it can be um, an empty space, warehouse somewhere, you know, in, uh, in the building, um, empty building, for example, in Yaka or in um, Brunswick, where we can, you know, with our creativity, we can start to organize uh, the facilities inside. What do we need? So who people we need to contact to. And then the secondly, uh, autonomous space is a uh, is a community space that are already established, but um, they're able to um, provide that space for us to uh, to be open with our um, political message and creativity uh, freely. Um, so yeah, that's the two different uh, space which I think that I've been involved in, and yeah. Uh, the most famous one throughout the whole uh, uh, Melbourne creative scene is uh, the underground car park, mm. which with uh, Collingwood, um, Collingwood uh, neighborhood house. So uh, 
there, uh, shout out to Richie, um, who has been working with um, all these different disadvantaged community that, um, uh, yeah, having um, annual uh, projects and open the the space for uh, for refugee community for West Papuan community. And Izzy, can you talk a little bit more about the United Struggle Project, of which you're a founder of? Um, so United Struggle Project started maybe 2010, 2011, so I guess it's nearly 10 years old now. began uh, when I was travelling a lot overseas and I met really inspiring artists in refugee camps and prisons um, and remote areas um, that had no access to recording and telling their stories. So um, I put the word out for people to donate beats and then travelled um, back around to all those places and, and many others from Kenya to Afghanistan, Palestine, all around, and made music videos and documentaries, um, recorded songs and got artists to collaborate on all those um, tracks um, uh, to kind of unite their different struggles and to kind of bring together, um, you know, voices from all around the world to talk about the their shared commonality in their, in their struggles through a creative way, through music and film. So that kind of evolved into um, a whole series of, of other kind of events and um, networks and I guess um, through the West Papua issues as well, different theatre projects um, and protests, uh, protestables out in the desert with Uncle Kevin, just finding different ways to creatively express our resistance um, to the stuff that was going down and the shared oppression that people are facing. Yeah, and I'd really like to talk about the importance of place-based community when you are doing this work um, and when it comes to both creating and organising, um, especially working with networks of musicians um, and activists. So, um, yeah, Izzy, did you want to start off talking about some of your experiences when blending um, music and art with activist spaces um, all across so-called Australia? Or should I start? <laughs> um, I guess for me, uh, being in a hip-hop group like Combat Wombat um, and working a lot in remote communities, doing music workshops um, with Indigenous youth and stuff, um, I found like so much inspiration and found that that was like an amazing way to communicate people's issues and, and stories and stuff. So um, when it comes to organising events, it meant that we had an amazing network of crew people um, to involve, um, to, whether it's fundraising for different campaigns or whether it's just kind of educating the broader community about certain issues. You know, we've got a wealth of different kind of platforms and mechanisms to be able to communicate that stuff. So, so yeah, so using that um, in places like NAM where there's a wealth of talent and, and amazing activists and creative people, it's fairly easy to bring together, you know, a, a good crew to be able to put on a fundraiser for, um, you know, whatever cause it is that, that seems to be happening at the time. So, yeah, I guess it's it's like finding spaces and places, whether it's a squat, whether it's on the front line in front of a uranium mine, 
whether it's um, in an underground car park on the housing estate. You know, there's all these different places and spaces that you can utilise to become creative autonomous zones, even just for one night, um, where people can find that, I guess, moment of liberation and creativity and also educate themselves about um, a whole variety of issues. Yeah, I love that creative um, autonomous zones. And can you talk about maybe some times when you've felt like you have created those creative autonomous zones? Someone who really taught me that was Uncle Kevin Buzzlecott, um down at, at Roxby. We were at the front of the uranium mine and he lit a fire on the road and he said, you know, right now this, there's a sacred fire burning on this road and no trucks are coming through today. There will be no trucks leaving the mine, carrying uranium, um, destroying our land. That's it. And it was interesting because it was just a, a fire, like a humble fire in the middle of the road, but it held such power because, you know, he they, he said these laws aren't our laws. These these rules, these things, they're not they're not ours. And this you know, and this fire is going to stay here and it's going to burn, and and you're not coming through. And we set up sound systems at either side. I think it was Oms Not Bombs had a, a bus with a sound system in it and we had the Labrat Solar Powered Sound System in a van and we had a freestyle battle with um, two rappers, one, I think they were both from America and they were at either end of the road um, having a having a rap battle like in a sound clash from each sound system <laughs> and the fire got bigger and bigger and bigger and I think by the end of it, all night the fire burnt and the music continued and... We, I ended up burning a big massive pothole in the middle of the road, but for at least 24 hours, no trucks went through and it was like, well, actually, hell yeah, we can do this. And yeah, I kind of want everyone to experience that, to feel that because it's, it's an amazing feeling and, you know, you know, yeah, it can be done in a place that a place of destruction can become a place of creativity. Izzy, I do want to ask you a bit more about the Change Hip Hop Theatre Project, which took place last year in the Collingwood Underground Car Park. So how did that project come about? And yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about who was involved and why you chose the Collingwood Underground Car Park to have that project? So um, hmm. Uh, the change began in 2017. Uh, when I first moved to Collingwood Housing Estate after squatting in Bendigo Street. And I discovered after meeting uh, some of the crew from the Collingwood Daywood House that we could access the underground um, car park as a venue. And because of its expansiveness and, um, you know, it was a, had endless possibilities. And I guess through my networks and also people that I met on the estate. Um, I saw the potential for, you know, a theatre project that could really encompass, like, so many people's stories and so many kind of aspects of, um, the, you know, the United Struggle Project and the struggles that people have faced but through, you know, community theatre and music. Um, so, yeah, it was the ideal venue to host, like, such an event. Um, the first one we actually did in the factory in Richmond in 2017 and then... 
meets an ever-evolving beast uh, with lots of fabulous superstars like Race Rage and Poro, uh, Elf Transporter, um, Grim Sim. Um, yeah, so um, combining all those really talented artists with a whole lot of um, people, like often kids from the estate that had never done anything before um, and other people that had that theatre experience and, and a lot that didn't, we all pulled together um Yes, yeah, a, a fabulous and epic, epic show that every every show was different. Every time it evolved, every time it had new aspects. Um, I never actually really knew how it would come together or what it would look like until the day we did it. <laughs> so you know, we went from covering kind of refugee issues and like First Nations sovereignty to looking at climate change. In the latest one that happened in 2019 was Rising Tide. So we tied in the whole climate change issue with. Um, a lot of the refugee stuff as well as, as First Nations struggles, including the Japarung um, tree camp. And, yeah, and so it kind of evolved with the times as well as looking at historical things like the Aboriginal Tent Embassy with Uncle Robbie and, you know, going to Lake Eyre, but then also, yeah, like uh, Japarung and you know, different issues that people brought to the table, um, West Papua, um, as, as it evolved. And... You know, it always amazed me how out of the chaos people could achieve, you know, incredible, incredible things. And it was exciting. You never knew what would happen. But, yeah, people amazed me with their with their dedication and skill and um, and use of the space. And, and, yeah, I really hope, you know, we can do these things in the future. With You know, COVID has made it hard, but um, I'm sure people are just, you know, laying low and and when we can it's going to be different it's going to be evolved it's going to be something else something new and that's exciting too and Poro did you want to share um some of your memories from being a part of the change hip-hop theater project yeah sure um yeah what's the, the amazing thing about it is uh again because of uh, uh each and every one of us we already have faith in our story. Um, uh, me, I'm being, I'm, um, I'm, I'm sharing my West Papua story, and then there's um, uh, Sophia from Palestine. You know, there's um, uh, Uncle Uncle Rob and Mini, and that's the most uh, beautiful thing about the creative and being an artist is that. Um, that connectedness, uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it's really, um, inspiring for me to just come into space and then everybody feel this, uh, solidarity feeling and, um, um, how can I say, uh, brotherhood feelings or uh, the same feelings to express themselves. We had so much freedom because we find that freedom within ourselves, within the group that we're working together, knowing that, oh, hey, we we all here affected by uh, such a um, uh, colonial system, such a, a brutal colonial system that, uh, and then again, um, within that system, it's very hard for us to have a, a freedom of gathering and only that, that space allowing us to be that uh to to be to be that uh that uh trusting to each other 
So that's the memory that uh, I still carry, and all of us within that group are still uh, one family. You know, it's uh, um, inside or outside because we already know we are connected with our story. So uh, we we bring it bring it outside. That means we can use it as a tool for mobilization. So that's why it's not only during uh, the theater. But also outside during, we do direct actions. We, um, we, we still, we still connect and support each other back. So every time, uh, for example, I do events in, um, underground car park and I'll bring the same crew to, um, to protest with the, uh, for refugee, for example, in, uh, Mantra or in Park Hotel. Or either on border cross with, with the same crew, with Easy, with the Race Rage, with Elf, and some punkers, and it's through, through allowing, uh, that creative, uh, autonomous space, we mm-hmm. can have that connections. We can have, uh, strengthen the mobilizations, and, um, that's one of the, uh, the visions forward is to be able to, um, help each other um for for their work and then for the for the visions to help their community and yeah so that's the memory that you know it's still attached to all of us uh different performer from united struggle project and yeah uh with uncle kev uh see every different figure within uh, the group uh, we keep passing each other's story too. Like I have, I have met uh, Uncle Kev and through Easy and through um, Race Rage. I got to meet Uncle Kev, and Un- Uncle Kev was there during the struggling forces. The the, <laughs> the same direct that. actions um, uh, with festival with creativity, and he was there. And so the story continues. So uh, this is a. Uh, a part of a of a life where we keep uh the we we keep it, we keep storytelling all the time and pass the story for generation to generation. And I want to ask as well um, how maybe you've both experienced times when the city of Melbourne or Creative Victoria or not for profit institutions have attempted to engage with you and. I guess, um, do you both want to maybe reflect on the ways that sometimes these tools for mobilisation, these political performances um, can become institutionalised? To answer that, to, to answer that question is to see the bigger picture on how actually uh, this system uh, really want to limit us in the way of um, our movement and our initiative and our um, our bigger goal with that um, with with uh, holding a creative space and knowing that the the system um, want to institutionalize meaning um, they really want to hold our voice down and uh, which I find find it really really devastating and really cool because. Um, for me, um, how can you shut the voice down of a creative person? 
um it's it's uh you you're ending up uh, someone uh, creative liberations and it can cause stress and it's just for one example and if we apply that to um to to a, a creative group as a as a whole then there'll be more stress there'll be more stress to us to a community knowing that um this is uh the art and uh, creativity is the only identity someone can help and you cannot do that to you cannot do that to to us as a group so um yeah it's it's uh to institu- institutionalize a creative space i find it really wrong uh because it's again um it's a big question to to the to the organizer of that space either to have, to make it accessible or not because what they're selling is a uh, they're selling to different uh community is some spaces say it's for community uh when we enter that space there's this uh breach of um bureaucracy that we need to uh face with and again um with some of us english is not our uh first language and then um uh most of the space that now commercials are, are run by um uh, uh you know rich uh a privileged uh community so um it's hard it's hard um when they institutionalize a, a space meaning the true freedom of creativity will be shut and uh that's violating the whole uh, visions of being a creative being itself uh, for 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 us for all of a creative organizer um, yeah I, i don't know yeah, that's that's what i'm i'm thinking if if people want institutionalize a creative space i uh, well, i guess for for me when i uh, my first hand experience is in the past you know, applying for grants. Everyone was like, you should get a grant for that. You're, you know, doing all this work, you know, la la. Um, and of course, when I applied for grants, I never got any because what I was doing was too radical and, um, and, you know, didn't tick the boxes, you know, with, um, you know, Vic Arts and, and all of those big kind of more government org bodies. They have all this money that's supposed to be for the arts, but like, unless you fit to a certain particular stereotype or you know someone that's on the board or whatever, it's actually quite hard to access any of any of that stuff. And so for me, I always felt like you just got to do it for the love. You got to do it anyway. You got to do it despite the fact that they're not going to give you any money for it, despite the fact that it doesn't fit the boxes or tick the boxes to obtain any of that money that is supposedly for the arts. Yeah, you know, you can't let that stuff stop you or stand in your way and I think often artists do get stifled because they think okay I should I could get a grant for that maybe if I change my work or adapt my work to fit that particular box then maybe I will you know and I think in that way um, it can be you know quite repressive for artists um, to go down that path but then you know more recently I have learned to navigate those systems and there's certainly ways you can um you know abstract cash from those systems and still use it the way you want to for the good of the planet <laughs> um but it certainly takes some navigating and and takes some knowing some people and 
and that's certainly not what everyone has access to. And so it's a bit of an unfair kind of, I don't know, ballpark. Um, and and whether you want to buy into that system or or work independently, you know, people have to often make make those choices. Um, mm. And that can often compromise their creativity. And often, once you do have a grant and you do have to fulfil all the things you said you're doing, it's actually way more stressful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I keep the money. I don't want the stress. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you have to like, especially if you're dealing with a large group of people, you know, like 60, 70 people that are involved in a project. And then how do you distribute that? And it's it's a bit daunting and can actually be a pain in the ass. But um. You know, I can't complain. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, are there any final thoughts, Poro, from you or Izzy, um, that you wanted to, you know, let people know about anything that's coming up? Um, any updates in regards to any of the campaigns or projects that you've talked about today? Yeah, uh, for me, uh, a message to this what so-called uh, community organization or social work or community development organization um, is that um, you we truly know that uh, this um, organization have bureaucracy and infrastructure but again um, please evaluate the, the policy and uh, the principle on working community to instead of uh, using um, these young creative people of color to be the uh, faces, but to be um, honest with their principles and their values, uh, so that there is no no feeling of this tokenism for for this next uh, generation, Melbourne Melbourne generation of creatives, because um, yeah, tokenism is a is a hard feeling uh, for us. Because um, again, all of us come into the space with a vision of amplifying our our story through all of these different creativity um, activities and movement. And yeah, if if later on they say that oh yeah, the space is for community, then you're allowing us come into a space which uh, a nurturing um, vision, you know and transparency and that would be a better uh advice for me so they can um help help them navigating to work with the, our young um uh, generations of uh people of color and creative industry and we in in West Papua the uh current the current covid situation is um it's pretty uh, deadly and really dangerous for community with not enough um, health facilities. And some of us, West um, Papuan activists, are still being held in in prisons and not having access to uh, legal aid or medical care. So um, I want to shout out for everyone there if they can support um, one of our leader, uh, Victor Yemo that still in jail and the uh, health is deteriorating so if they can um you know uh share around the social media as a as in uh solidarity photos or, or holding a placard with written um uh hashtag free victor yemo 
uh, V-I-C-T-O-R and Y-E-I-M-O, and that would be great. And also, if um, people want to do more work, they can contact the Indonesian consulates around in Australia, in Melbourne, to uh, just uh, check in that, oh, you know, Australia is abiding the rule of human rights uh, principles and as a member of UN. So it's, uh, um, it's a reminder that, hey, uh, we are your neighbor and please look after our West Papuan friends, um, yeah, in jail so they can, um, be humanely. Um, so that's from, uh, West Papua current COVID situation. And um, on that note, thank you so much, Poro and Izzy, for joining me today um, for this disorganising project that 3CR um, has been doing a series of interviews with people um, about the local history of Fitzroy and Collingwood and gentrification. And today we really spoke about the use of public space and art and politics and organising. Excellent. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you for having us, Carly. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be here with Radical Radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2021, and much more. For summer grid details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. Well, I think we might go to a track. Uh, This is Out the Door by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Truly. 
You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. We just heard a great track called Out the Door by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. It's 7.44 almost in the morning. Um, And up next, we're really lucky to be joined by Jazz Money, a poet and artist of Wiradjuri heritage currently based on sovereign Gadigal land. Her poetry has been published widely and reimagined as murals, installations, digital interventions and film. And she's joining us to discuss her award-winning award-winning debut collection of poetry, How to Make a Basket. Good morning, Jazz. Welcome to Thursday Morning Breakfast. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I first wanted to just invite you to introduce yourself um, and also to, I don't know, talk about this debut collection of poetry, which won the David Uniapan Award, which obviously is a massive honour. It's been in the world for a short while now. How are you feeling about the collection? (laughs) Um, Yeah, thanks. So, like you said, my name's Jazz. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from uh, central South New South Wales on the beautiful Murrumbidgee River, um, but currently living on beautiful Gadigal land in Sydney. Um, the book has been out for a couple of weeks, which is it's such a funny time to have something like a book come out. I mean, I don't really know because I've never had one come out <laughs> before, but um, just the process of having something come out into a pandemic is so funny because... Writing a book is very solitary and reading a book is very solitary and then there's this kind of moment where something is born and, you know, it's hard to tell what's been going on but it's such an honour and a privilege to have it out and have it in people's hands and, and be hearing what people are thinking of it. So, yeah, it's been really special but just a bit a bit odd, I guess. <laughs> I know, yeah, those those moments of contact where you get to actually have conversations. I suppose um, in a very small way radio interviews are kind of this nice place where we're, we are distance, we're on the phone, um, but we're also connected to people listening. So that, that's kind <laughs> yes, of nice. thank you. <laughs> um, while I was reading the poems, I did notice there was a lot of, like, tactility um, in the descriptions, a lot of... Um, Descriptions of country, river, trees and dirt were in, in contact with the, your body or the speaker's body. And I was wondering if you could speak to that tactility, whether it's important to express that through the poems for you. Um, was it something you were thinking about and, yeah, um, where that kind of came from? Um, that's a great, great question. So thank you. Um, I guess it comes just really from the way that I am engaging with the world and the things that I'm kind of um, missing and valuing. A lot of these books, a lot of these poems in the book I wrote off country and am in a like almost constant yearning and dialogue for being, being on home country um, or not being in the city, which is where I live most of the time. Mm. Um, and I guess I've I began writing poetry just as a way of sort of um, making things feel easier and kind of trying to be in a, a, a process of soothing and healing myself. And, and that comes from, you know, uh, focusing on the things that make me feel good and safe and I hope make other people feel that way as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely felt reading the poems, uh, yeah, obviously in lockdown at the moment as well in Melbourne and just being um, able to yeah, connect in some way to other parts of um, experience and life is definitely special and something I've, I've found really enjoyable about reading poetry uh, in general in this time. 
I'm wondering, wondering also um, about the use of Radri language in the collection. Um, you mentioned that um, uh, the dictionary, Radri dictionary used in the collection in your notes, but um, a lot of the poems, like the way that you use the language changes. So sometimes it's um, translated, sometimes it's pitted kind of against English in some way, or um, it ignores English in some way. And I was just wondering about these decisions, um, whether there was an evolution, a change, or it's just different at different in different poems. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess my relationship with Wiradjuri is kind of constantly shifting and changing because I'm still very much a learner of the language. I'm kind of all right um, in some contexts, but I'm not really conversational yet, and that's you know, a, a constantly, you know, changing and shifting thing as I get better at speaking my language and, and being comfortable within it. But um, what made sense to me when writing this collection was just to use the language that, you know, I care more about than I care about English. Mm. Unfortunately, English for me is, is the language that I'm most um, fluent in. But Wiradjuri is the language where I feel like so many of the things I want to express are contained within the beautiful poetry and richness of the words themselves. Um, and sometimes I think they kind of speak for themselves and don't need a translation. And I wanted to really um, make that space, you know, for Wiradjuri speakers reading the book, it's so beautiful to be able to encounter the words being kind of held on their own. But then if you're not a Wiradjuri speaker, I think it's a really lovely invitation to consider what these words mean and try and feel the space around them and see if you can understand them. And if you can't, then there's another like great invitation to kind of learn more about maybe Wiradjuri or maybe another first Australian language because I think um, kind of making them normal in our, in our conversations and in our books is a, is a really important kind of um, step for the language regeneration projects more broadly. Mm, I think that's so true. And also, I think poetry is pretty unique in the way that um, it invites you to engage with words, not just like, what does it mean? But like, what does it sound like? What does it feel like to say? All those sorts of things. So it is it kind of makes sense as a place to encounter something maybe that you don't know or something that you do know and, and encounter it in a different way. And that's um, is a really generous and beautiful thing to offer to readers of the language and and readers who don't who don't necessarily understand the words but but are invited to engage with them in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I think poetry also has this great thing where it's um, quite contained. Like you know, no poem is usually more than a couple of pages, so it's kind of like a safe little place to engage with a concept or a theory, and then at the end of that kind of assess what you learned or took away without having to read a full novel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I wanted to talk specifically about, I mean, uh, there are so many poems that I wanted to talk about. So it really is a really beautiful collection. I do, should say that before I keep asking these kind of very specific questions. But I just wanted to talk about the poem, um, A Case Study of the Colony. It, it uses the sale of a piece of land or property in Lutruida, Tasmania, as a case study of colonial processes of uh, expropriation, frontier violence, capitalism, and that list kind of goes on. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk about that story and what you were trying to do in the in the poem by speaking to that history and that, I mean, that ongoing history. Um, well, thank you so much for asking about that. I am really proud of this poem and I feel like a lot of people find it maybe confronting. 
Um, and I actually haven't had any opportunities to talk about it yet, so I'm really chuffed now that you've asked. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, like you said, it came from reading um, last year a real estate listing um, online that one of my friends who is uh, Palawa posted on Facebook just being like, get a load of this, the, the colony is so shameless. Um, and, yeah, it was just this crazy ad that listed all the ways that you could extract things from the land while also saying this was the first time the property had ever gone for sale um, with the subtext that was unwritten in the real estate ad being that, you know, this is stolen land that's never been bought. Um, And I just thought, you know, it's so shameless and it's so grotesque and the fact that they're now listing it for $12 million um, after having sort of taken everything from the land because there's, you know, a forestry plantation there, there's a mine there, there's agricultural holdings, there's a church, like, all, like you know, this <laughs> spiritual and physical degradation um, of something that still remains strong and still remains Aboriginal land. But I just thought it was this really interesting place to kind of have a dialogue and have a conversation. And the way that it kind of sits in the book, this poem, Case Study of the Colony, it's... Um, rotated at an angle because I really wanted people to get a sense that, you know, this was a shift, this was something else, this was, you know, a a piece to be encountered in a very different way to a lot of the other poems in the collection, which, you know, there's love poems and there's beautiful things, but there's also um, frustration and anger and this, this piece kind of takes the tone of colonial coloniality that I felt was quite um, (laughs) grotesque and I wanted people to kind of have this space of distance when reading it. Mm, Yeah, as you say, you could literally not not do more destructive processes to this piece of land, like um, beginning with that uh, first expropriation and um, stealing and then kind of continuing that through for however many years and then selling it after having, having kind of taken everything that you can and you play on that poem in the word mine which as you say there's a mine on that piece of country and then um, that idea of possession as well which I I found really powerful and yeah you know what I was so proud of that when I did the mine pun I was like this is really hot stuff I'm really like playing with language now and then (laughs) and then a few months later I happened to hear one of the songs from Pocahontas where they also (laughs) that on the word and I was like damn that was my favorite movie when I was a kid I've just like subliminally ripped off Pocahontas 20 years later (laughs) oh well you never know I mean that is I think that is actually the beauty of uh writing poetry I feel like we can try you know you can try and be um you do list or like acknowledge lots of sources in your in your notes but sometimes language slips into our mind in ways that we can't understand or predict until it reveals itself later Um, you just spoke, uh, mentioned love poems and, um, I was wondering maybe, maybe if you wanted to read, um, Dripping Banksia Pods, I also really love that poem, maybe more than a love poem. I read it as kind of a, a heartbreak poem or a, a past love poem, um, but it sort of ends with growth and change. And maybe if you wanted to read it and then talk a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I'm loving your choices. They're things that I wasn't, you know, I haven't spoken about heaps, so it's really delightful. Um, thank you. Uh, so the poem, Dripping Banksia Pods. Boys hanging fists off the clothesline for places I've never been and can never visit. The rest is future. 
Our clunking cheekbones, ringing mistakes, my mind will play over a self-inflicted obsession and some liberating kind of power. I don't want to change the world. I just want to be there giving out glances as bouquets. Contempt for your lover, hubris in our footsteps. Let me throw salt on your enemies. Let me warm you, darling. Pour milk on your heart, a drop from my breast on each eye to clear your vision. He was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. Botticelli, Michelangelo, Da Vinci. Every word gospel, every vision featured a blue-eyed beauty, dogmatic from another land. So we learnt to live in a castle, landlocked and European. All I yearned for, red dirt and forever air. What a gag. Symphonic spectral man, suffering malaise, twisted light which moves around or through. This pounds a village. Sitting with the boys under olive trees, playing cards in torchlight beneath the steeple, a churchyard glow. Bullets lodged from some revolution inside your mother's house. I run, dripping Banksia pods, ectoplasmic as I think of you in love with legs and dimples and smells that aren't mine. I ran from those soldiers into the arms of women. They sing out for me to drink freedom from their lips. Time passing over a backyard fence rusting. I'm safe here. Lover, your pure light shooting through someone else's skies. So that poem um, is very specific and I haven't actually read out loud in so long. So that was really... Um, fun and really interesting the the reason that it's such a specific poem is because i was married to a beautiful hungarian man when i was in my early 20s um and we did live in europe together in this kind of crazy amazing um european or hungarian um uh, apartment that was in a former castle, I think. It, it was it was quite wild. And um, we were there and I, I'd looked forward to it for so long. We'd met in Australia and I just really had dreamed of being kind of worldly, global sort of person. And once we got there, I was just so desperate for home and for Australia and for the openness and also realising <laughs> a few months into this very sweet marriage that maybe I was queer and <laughs> maybe I needed to go home and, and figure myself out. And uh, it was a really, really beautiful, strange time. And that's that's what I wrote this poem kind of in the midst of. Um, I was I was living in Hungary when I started writing it and finished it when I got home once I sort of realised how it was going to end. <laughs> mm, I mean, I think that's maybe that's what drew me to the poem was this kind of just, I really felt that sense of um, change or, yeah, self-realisation in some way. And I think that they're hard poems to write um, and really convey the meaning of that without it kind of being um, heavy-handed in some way. So, yeah, I thought it was very beautiful. Um, we're unfortunately running out of time Um Maybe I have one more question. I think I'll just have to wrap it up. Maybe I'll ask um, instead just where listeners can find your beautiful book um, and if you're doing any other events or speaking anywhere else that they might want to tune into. 
Oh, great. Um, so the book is available from all good bookstores and preferably um, independent ones because they really need the support in these shocking times. So if, uh, if you can support local independent booksellers, please, please, please do that. Um, I keep popping up in different places <laughs> doing online events at the moment. Um, tomorrow there's a panel that I'm chairing at Western Sydney University online with the incredible Alison Whitaker and Ellen Van Nieuwen, um, which I'm like totally thrilled for. That sounds and... like one to catch for sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I guess in a more kind of concrete sense, uh, there will hopefully, fingers crossed, be a live launch event in Sydney and Western Sydney and in Melbourne, um, probably Melbourne in the new year. So that's uh, an exciting thing for me to look forward to, at least, to be able to gather with people in real space. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new collection, How to Make a Basket, and reading for us on, on air. Thanks very much, Jazz. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. And that was Jazz Money, a poet and artist of Radri Heritage, currently based on sovereign Gadigal land. Her poetry has been published widely and reimagined as murals, installations, digital interventions and film. And she was joining us to discuss her award-winning debut collection, How to Make a Basket. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Um, and now I think we might go to a track. This is Closer by Nairi from her new album, Three. In the
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The track that you just heard was off Nairi's new album, and that was Closer. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street, and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society, and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be here with Radical Radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2021, and much more. For summer grid details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. Melbourne Activist Legal Support held a discussion on Tuesday the 28th of September about the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Act 2021. So that bill recently became law, and this gives broad powers to federal police and intelligence agencies to spy on, disrupt, and modify communications. And the clip you're about to hear features lawyer and human rights advocate Angus Murray discussing the legislation and notions of relevant offences and reasonable suspicion with comments from host Jordan Brown from MALS. I guess where we could start with all of this is perhaps um, maybe a bit of a primer on how we sort of got to this place uh, and then we can dive into the, the Identify and Disrupt with that context in our pockets. Um, so over to you, Angus. Thanks, Jordan. Good afternoon, everyone. My webcam says that it's on, but I don't think it's broadcasting this group, so I hope that everyone can hear me clearly. Uh, before launching into this, I, I think a bit of context um from my perspective, is useful to everyone. Uh, although I am a partner and trademarks attorney at a law practice, Irish Bentley Lawyers, um, my position here is not necessarily as a lawyer. Uh, my position here sits more in the work that I've done in civil society organisations, including Electronic Frontiers Australia, 
the Queensland Council for Prior Civil Liberties, uh, where I'm a vice president of that organisation, the Australasian Cyber Law Institute, uh, and I'm also involved in quite a few other civil society organisations. Um, I also have the great fortune of teaching law as a lecturer at the University of Southern Queensland. And from my perspective, which probably puts the, the history and the context of this back uh, into greater context is I um, am a lawyer by profession and I studied law here in uh, where I'm coming from in Queensland before taking my studies over to Stockholm, Sweden, uh, where I did a master's by research on the interaction between the personal right to privacy and the enforcement of copyright uh, as a comparative study between Australia and the European Union. That was 2012 uh, that I went to Sweden, and at that point uh, I hadn't really, as a student of law, been exposed to the concept of personal privacy, and I hadn't certainly been exposed to the um, concept of rights subsisting within a digital environment. It was only with the advantage of a European perspective that I, I started to find a focus and interest in uh, what Australia has as its landscape for digital rights uh, and how individuals, human beings, interact in that digital environment. So when I returned uh, from Sweden to Australia, I was fortunate uh, in the sense that my interest was immediately uh, grabbed and focused with the 2013 introduction of the concept of mandatory metadata retention in Australia. Uh, and that's really the, the first piece of significant surveillance landscape legislation that we have in Australia. Uh, mandatory metadata retention as a recap for everyone is a requirement of carriage service providers to retain data about data being metadata um, for a period of two years. Interestingly, at that point, the Attorney General and uh, Communications Minister involved in the introduction of that legislation really bumbled over this concept of metadata and what it was that was actually being achieved uh, through that process. Um, that legislation was heavily sold by government as necessary to combat and counter terrorism uh, and for the purpose of ensuring that the Australian community is safe. And there are a number of assurances made around that legislation in the various iterations it had through bill form. Uh, there was a lot of lobbying that I was involved with, uh, as were a number of other people in this call and a lot of people across Australia uh, that were concerned with the path that Australia was heading down and the fairly significant step that mandatory metadata retention had on that electronic communication surveillance landscape in Australia. That legislation passed uh, with only one very minor uh, alteration, and that was the requirement for journalistic information warrants. So that's the requirement that the federal police uh, obtain a warrant when the metadata that they're seeking to be uh, disclosed relates to a journalist or a journalist source. I'm going to flag now here for everyone because this becomes very relevant with concerns that I have in the more recent legislation that the Australian Federal Police has on a number of occasions accessed journalistic information without a warrant and without going through the proper steps that are required in the metadata retention scheme. Uh, but that piece of legislation was focused on data about data and didn't deal with content between communications. Since 2015, when that became law, We've had a couple of fairly significant legislative uh, progress progressions. The two pieces of legislation that have passed uh, and passed in particularly concerning ways, uh, by that I mean the way that they were introduced 
the way that inquiry was taken around the legislation uh, and the context and framing that governments put around uh, those pieces of legislation uh, are concerning and should be a reason to have a discussion in and of itself. But those two pieces of legislation are the um, assistance and access legislation, which is the telecommunications and other legislation amendment, was introduced uh, in 2018. A very, very short window of time was given uh, for submissions to Home Affairs about the legislation. Um, I believe Lucy was involved in aspects of that where we were given two weeks in September in 2018 to put together a submission about a piece of legislation that was almost a thousand pages long and has dramatic impact on Australia's tech industry and Australians generally. Uh, despite significant work going into submissions from civil society organisations and a large number of submissions coming from the tech industry, uh, that legislation passed in substantially the same form as it was introduced by the Home Affairs Portfolio. The Minister for that is a common uh, feature across a lot of this legislation. That's Peter Dutton, the now Minister for Defence. The Telecommunications Assistance and Access legislation enables a couple of things, but effectively it is the realisation on uh, the Australian Government's 2016 declaration of war on maths. It's the encryption busting legislation. Um, any government that introduces something with a focus on declaring war on mathematics, I think is the same problem with the government that introduced uh, mandatory metadata retention without knowing what metadata is. It's a fundamentally naive concept uh, and a concept that was widely criticised because encryption isn't just something used by criminals. Uh, encryption is used by the banking sector. Indeed, it's used by most government agencies in the way that they communicate into government. Um, that legislation was somewhat watered down, uh, although only very minor amendments were made, and allows the government to request um, or provide notice to a very wide-ranging classification of uh, providers called designated communications providers, requirements that that designated communication provider does any number of acts or things to assist government with the, um, the interception or access to their... Uh, service. A designated communication provider is effectively any person or entity that has an end user and that includes websites. So incredibly broad and the definition of designated communications provider I, I think warrants some concern in and of itself. That so we're not just talking, we're not, yeah, we're not just talking about ISPs here, we're, we're talking about anyone right. who runs a website or... We're talking about anyone who has an end user. So even more broadly than a website, a website's used as a specific example of a designated communication provider, but it's anyone who uses an electronic service that has an end user. So it doesn't even need to be a website. It could be offering any form of communication platform, any form of payment gate, any form of wow. uh, technology that makes available a service to a user or more than one user. Um, it's a very, very wide ranging concept. In that same legislation that substantially reformed uh, or deformed, I think is probably the better way of putting this, Australia's telecommunication landscape and the way that we have internet operating in Australia was a number of other um, fairly subtle but quite important changes. One was a change to the definition of computer in the Surveillance Devices Act, which is now one computer, two computers, a network of two or more computers or any of the above. So when we're talking about target computers, we're talking about effectively the internet. Uh, and that legislation had quite a bit of attention around it because it, it, it is extremely intrusive powers. 
um, and was introduced on a very false uh, footing, a declaration of war on maths. Now, most recently, we have an amendment to the Surveillance Devices Act and other legislation, which is the Identify and Disrupt uh, Bill that became an act at the start of this month. This legislation now allows the Australian government to obtain data disruption warrants, network activity warrants, account takeover warrants, and make assistance orders to require a provider or facilitator of a computer system um, to do one of the things or assist with any of the things in one of those warrants. It's incredibly intrusive power. Uh, and if we take ourselves back to where I started this introduction, where I found my interest and passion in this space in Europe, a lot of these powers are abhorrent to our European friends. And the reason for that is simply there is federal or at least international multilateral harmonized human rights protections in Europe. And a large number of these powers would be incompatible with the human rights expectations of our European friends. In Australia, we don't have those human rights protections. What we have instead is a required trust of our legislature, the government, that they will do things for our benefit and not to our detriment. And if I go back to the example I gave about journalistic information warrants in the first piece of this particularly abrasive legislative slide we've taken ourselves down, if the federal police couldn't comply with the simple requirement to get a warrant for journalists when they didn't require warrants for anyone else, it's a little bit difficult to say that this isn't heading down a path where we're giving a toolkit of enormous powers to a very small group of people that are secret in their operation and haven't got a particularly good track record of understanding technology or using the power that they've been given in relation to technology. And I think that's probably the, the most succinct summary I could give of where we get to now. There are obviously a lot of uh, very important intersections that come into that. Mm. Um, I do welcome uh, any of our audience to uh, feel free to post any uh, questions they may have in the chat. Um, I have one to kick this off, though, just about while we're getting into the warrants. Um, so say, for example, I think all of them actually contain phrases such as uh, in, in regards to the, the threshold in which they're tripped off, um, the phrase relevant offences and reasonable suspicion. Um, perhaps we could talk about the relevant offences first and maybe get into this element of reasonable suspicion. But, yeah, what... Maybe even get into some examples as well. What, but what is a relevant offence in this context of the Identify and Disrupt frameworks, the Act? Yeah, that one's directed to me, John. I'm happy to, to take that. And uh, it's a very important point. Firstly, um, because it's probably easier to take the reasonable suspicion before the relevant offence. Reasonable suspicion is an incredibly low bar. It just requires that the decision-maker has a skerrick of evidence that gives a reasonable basis to have suspicion that a relevant offence is occurring. So the smallest piece of information that could possibly come into the hands of uh, the federal police or one of its agencies would give rise for the basis of uh, these warrants being issued. A relevant offence, I have to start by again emphasising that this legislation has been sold to the Australian community to the extent that this has been a transparent, open and consultative process that has given us this legislation. Uh, this has been sold to the Australian community as necessary to protect the Australians against terrorism, necessary to prevent human trafficking and to frustrate or remove child exploitation material. Personally, I agree with all three of those um, 
rationale or basis for having legislation. Each of those the three things are abhorrent to a properly functioning society. But that's not what a relevant offence is. A relevant offence is defined uh, as a serious Commonwealth offence, and the Crimes Act gives a list of uh, non-exhaustive things that are serious Commonwealth offences. Included within that list are things like distributing child exploitation material, harbouring terrorists, terrorism, uh, etc. But that list doesn't stop there. It includes things like drug offences with a very broad and unlimited concept, tax evasion, misuse of a computer, or any offence that is a matter of the same general nature as one of those three things I've just mentioned and is punishable by a maximum of three years imprisonment or more. If you fail to lodge your tax return for four years, you would be liable in a situation potentially to be a subject of a reasonable offence. And if there was a scary of information that that was a possibility for you, these powers have an arguable application to your situation. And that is nowhere near the same territory as this is legislation designed specifically to prevent or frustrate the existence of terrorism, terror activity in Australia. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and you just heard Angus Murray speaking about the Identify and Disrupt Act 2021 and notions of relevant offences and reasonable suspicion at an event that was held by Melbourne Activist Legal Support on Tuesday, the 28th of September to discuss uh, the Act. Um, you can find out more information from Mal's website. So that's Melbourne Activist Legal. Um, and if you just look that up on Google and they've got a page um, where they talk about the Identify and Disrupt Bill, which is uh, very informative, um, useful, and I recommend that people have a read if they want to learn more. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming, and now we're going to go to a track, and this one is Addy by Teether, Sevi and Kuyanil. Too close by for comfort This one got me fucked up I 
daddy, baby, save you can slide. She got big pants like 2005. Not Michael Jackson, but remember the time. I still listen up for your smile. Kiss, Nikki, say remember you're not lucky, you please. Save you, baby, save you, then you do it with cheese. Uh, come around, but I would if you behave. Think how you love me, told just like crazy. Kiss, feeding fresh, feeling like a new washout. Gassing me to the face, feel like a blowout. Rock up in arm, and I'm gonna rock out my love with flame. Boy, pulls up, pulls the sock out. Yeah. And that was Addie by Sevi, Kuyanil, and Teether. A proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people, and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. That's all we have time for on 3CR Thursday Breakfast this morning. Thanks for joining us and make sure you stay tuned to 3CR 855am all summer long. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.